Welcome to the first episode of the Tech Garden Podcast. The Tech Garden Podcast explores what it means to be an entrepreneur in central New York by interviewing startup founders. For those of you that don't know, the Tech Garden is central New York's premier business incubator. Composing the innovation and entrepreneurship portfolio of Center State CEO, our local economic development strategist, and Chamber of Commerce, the Tech Garden fosters high-tech, high-growth companies with resources, programs, and events both virtually and at its headquarters in downtown Syracuse, New York. If you would like to know more about the Tech Garden, please visit thetechgarden.com or follow us on social media. In this episode, we sit down with SpinCar founders Devin Daly and Michael Quigley. SpinCar is a software platform that allows automotive dealers to display 360 images of their cars online, helping dealers worldwide sell more cars. SpinCar was a member of the Tech Garden from 2014 to 2017, shortly before landing a $22 million investment that allowed them to expand their market, opening an office in the UK, and hire almost 100 employees, most of whom work at their Syracuse office in the Tech Corridor of Warren Street. This episode is a recording of the Tech Garden's Founder Fireside Chat series, in which Nasser Ali, CEO of Upstate Venture Connect and author of the Upstate Founders Playbook, conducted the interview. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Tech Garden. My name is Kara Jones. I'm the Content Outreach Strategy Manager here. Uh, we are Central New York's premier technology incubator. We've been here for almost 15 years now, um, and we have over 100 startup members, which is super exciting for us. Um, we also have an office, office space at AXA Tower 2 because we are at full capacity here at the Tech Garden. Um, we're super excited for tonight because we have SpinCar here. They actually incubated at the Tech Garden a couple years ago, right? And they were actually in the office a few. Right, a few years ago. <laughs> they're in the office right next door. Uh, so it's really exciting to see them come back and how much they're scaling in central New York, uh, the investment that they've gotten recently. Um, so we're super excited to have them here. Thank you so much for coming. And I'll leave it over to Nasser. Here we go. Thanks. Thanks, Carol. Hi, everybody. So, hi, everyone. I'm Nasser, and um, it's really a pleasure to be here today with so many old friends and new. And we've got some folks from uh, used to work at SpinCar and are now starting their own business. And uh, Dave Matter came up from Atlanta. He's a new board member. Wavecrest. Uh, the new investors are here uh, from Boston, so it's uh, it's really a great opportunity to kind of think back to 15 years ago when um, the building was first opened, and and the dream was always to have more and more events like this, and to see more and more companies get started here and succeed. So, thank you all for joining us. We wanted to make a short uh, conversation, but give you more of an opportunity than to ask questions. And we also have a book uh, that chronicles uh, uh, the journey of SpinCar as well as other uh, upstate companies. And uh, this was only possible because our friends from the one group, John Catanzarito is here, uh, made it possible through their generous support for us to pull all those stories together and make them available so that more people can know that not only is it possible to grow a business, you can actually grow some great businesses in upstate New York. So thank you for coming. And thank you, Devin and Mike. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, um, you know, I prepared a few questions and wanted to just, uh, you know, use them as, as a way to start, kind of get your story out there, both of you grew up in Syracuse, right? What was that like? 
Yeah, um, so yeah, I grew up right here in Syracuse, right in the city of Syracuse, actually. Right, so first off, uh, thank you, Tara, for putting mm -hmm. this event together. Uh, thank you, John, for organizing the book, and Nasser for, for hosting us here. Um, really excited to be back. Uh, uh, but yes, as, as I was saying, grew up right here in Syracuse on the Sedgwick neighborhood, just probably five minutes from here. Um, and uh, I mean, it was a wonderful place to grow up. There's not many small to medium-sized cities where you can grow up with a nice house in the yard and be five minutes from the city center and have access to uh, wonderful institutions like the Museum of Science and Technology, the Everson Museum, uh, here at Canal Museum, and, uh, and so forth. Um, spent a, a lot of time outdoors and wonderful mm -hmm. uh, lakes around the city as well, um, which um, in, in other metros, I mean, it isn't something you have easy access to. So wonderful place to grow up. Uh, couldn't imagine doing it anywhere else. Yeah, so I actually didn't grow up in Syracuse. And again, yeah, to Mike's point, thanks everybody for putting this on. Great event, great to see a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time. So um, I grew up about 20 minutes south of here in a little town called Tully. Um, it's sort of rural. I grew up on one of the Kettle Lakes down there. Uh, it was great childhood. I mean, I, I had access to a beautiful swimming hole, had this local ski mountains here in the background, five minutes from me. Uh, really, again, couldn't have imagined a better way to grow up. Uh, went on to CBA, which is where Mike and I went. Um, and, you know, and this sort of about the founding story of the company. And so how did CBA influence our decisions in business? CBA, as many of you know, has a big focus on kind of athletics. Um, I went on to play, you know, D1 college lacrosse. And I think that, you know, sort of grit and perseverance um, has what, you know, a big part of what's allowed us to be successful today. And even until today, we still, you know, will prioritize hiring of athletes and um, folks that kind of have those values that we hold so dear in upstate New York. Awesome, great. So I, I do want to point out that as someone who didn't grow up in upstate New York, I'm always amazed that people who live 20 minutes away describe themselves as being from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so cool. Um, so, so you guys went to college, you were living busy lives, having fun and success in New York and Washington, D.C. How did the idea behind augmented reality concepts come about? What was, what was the story, and and why did you decide to pursue it in Syracuse? It's a great question. So yeah, so we started the company about like seven years ago. I think it was now. It was about this time in, in 2012. Uh, my background was I started, you know, sort of typical finance career, um, spent two years um, at Merrill Lynch in their investment banking division focused on sort of technology and then moved into a company um, called Cambridge Associates, uh, which was a growth equity uh, sort of venture consulting role. And we developed, you know, a particular sort of focus on software as a service companies, sort of like subscription type companies but had almost kind of like a sub-thesis that was focused on um, sort of e-commerce enablement products, you know, e-commerce conversion type products. We'd invest in like a chat company uh, and like something to do with like a recommendation engine. And what we realized was these e-commerce products had like even better characteristics. They even had, had faster adoption and better retention um, than a lot of the other software as a service companies that, that we had done deals with. And so started talking to Mike, came back to Syracuse, started ideating on like, you know, what's the next thing in this e-commerce evolution? And that's where we came up with this notion that 360 imaging is a tried and true way to improve e-commerce conversion, but there wasn't really an out of the box solution that made it easy to create that type of content. And so we initially targeted fashion um, and essentially brought them our 360 imaging product, had some success, 
uh, signed up some big sort of marquee clients like Louis Vuitton was a big win for us back in the day. Warby Parker was a big win for us back in the day, thanks to some of the local agencies here in town. Terakee was a partner of ours. They helped us get introduced to some of those big clients, Picking Hugo Group as well, Eric Mower as well, um, which goes to show sort of the strength of the community. Um, but it was a super long sales cycle, so I can maybe come back to how we pivoted into auto. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it was very long to go through the process of selling to a Louis Vuitton. There'd be four ad agencies involved in some cases and 12 different decision makers. So we were always looking for something that was kind of faster and more repeatable. Right. Yeah, and, and my background was in product development. So I was, I was working at IAC, a big dot-com conglomerate down in the city. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, to Devin's point, I mean, we, when we got started, we were really kind of thesis-driven around 360 imaging. We didn't know how we wanted to commercialize the technology, what industry we were going to end up in, be it fashion, uh, we tried publishing uh, at one point in time, but ultimately settled on automotive. And um, yeah, I, I think in, in coming back to Syracuse, I, I went to college in, in New York City. Um, coming back here, it was, it was really amazing to see the, the breadth of uh, knowledge that's that's up here in, in Syracuse and, and how accessible it is. Um, whereas in a, a place like New York City, it, it's tough to get on the horn someone who might be a, automotive software expert, whereas in Syracuse there's maybe like one or two people who have had a, a business in that sector who are super accessible, super easy to tap into and uh, get feedback from, um, which I, I think, I mean, if there's any entrepreneurs in the, in the room or hope to be entrepreneurs in the room, I, I think that's really critical. People talk a lot about um, once you have product market fit, talking to customers and uh, uh, building out features that way and developing user stories and so forth. But even earlier than that, I think something that's neglected is um, getting feedback from just a, a broad-based cohort of, of industry experts. I mean, especially if you're more technology-driven um, and don't really have um, an idea yet how you want to commercialize that technology. And um, I think in a place like Syracuse with a wealth of um, so many fabulous universities within an hour, 75-minute drive, um, there's a lot of really smart people here and they're generally quite accessible. Yeah, great. So you guys actually took on the office right across the hallway here, right? That's right and yeah. I think is the is the big mural for spin cars still on the wall there or not sure. Yeah, yeah we'll no, take a look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that became kind of the signature's place and then you you so you became part of the tech garden community and then um, we had met Chuck Chuck and I had met you guys in twenty twelve and then we uh, started to work together in earnest in 2013 through Startfast. Um, talk about kind of, you know, what being part of that uh, that network and that community uh, did for you. I mean, this was the time of the great pivots, right? We went through, uh, like, didn't you guys do the um, the Everson pottery collection? That's that was to the deal with the tech garden as well. That's right. Yeah, somewhere there's a 3D model of the tech garden floating around. So sure. <laughs> somewhere in the ether. Wonderful use. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, as I said, we, we pivoted a lot. And um, yes, that's right. I mean, we digitized the Everson ceramics collection. Everson's those we don't know just that across the, the street. Um, that, that was an early mm -hmm. test. We thought maybe the museum market would be really lucrative. Turns out not-for-profits don't have a lot of money to spend on software, so that wasn't <laughs> the best, best call. But um, but yeah, from there we, we tried publishing and um, tapped into uh, the Newhouse network up here, which is so vibrant. And um, again, enabled by Starfast. And um, I mean, from there, we uh, slowly moved into automotive. And um, again, another Starfast connection. Um, fellow who had had a, a few exits in 
uh, automotive software, which at the time John we, Miller, that's yeah. John yeah. Miller, um, who actually went on to become a Spin Car board member. And um, no, at the, at the time, I mean, even everyone knows museums, everyone knows publishing. At the time, we had no idea there even was such a thing as an automotive software company. Our Dave Meyer, our, our board member, is serial automotive software entrepreneurs laughing about that. But there was a time when we had no idea that uh, there was this vibrant industry, industry, and we really were pulled into it uh, by a Starfast mentor and. Um, we're able to move a lot more quickly and develop reseller relationships with industry partners on the basis of that relationship. Yeah. So, you know, for for the entrepreneurs in the audience, uh, one of the the signature features of the team, and it was largely Devin and Mike at the time, uh, <clears throat> was that these guys knew that they had to make their numbers every quarter. You know, and and. The, the number of pivots that happened were sort of, there was a sequential refinement of the focus is how I think about it because, and that was almost reflected in the name and the way that it went from augmented reality concepts, which is a very thesis driven, as Mike would say, very broad view of this is how retail is gonna change to then becoming swipe to spin, right? Which is still not product or market specific, it's still saying this is a feature of what we're doing to spin car, which is incredibly precise, right? And, and, and so for any startup, particularly in the internet space, that's just a reality. Where you start is not necessarily where you're gonna be uh, ending up. And, and the fact that this team was constantly able to, to refine their perspective and do it in a very data-driven manner, and above all, make their make their sales numbers <laughs> really was um, you know I think a defining characteristic and and why we were able to convince you know despite all those shifts and changes the investors kept backing you because they had faith that you were going to deliver so this is sure. you know it's a uh, it's a lesson that Chuck and I share with with a lot of people that were we're talking to when we talk about what we're looking for in founders. So thank you. So, um, so you guys came through here, and then there was a moment when you said, "Okay, we've gotten some funding, and we think we need to be in New York City." And you had an office in New York City, right behind Bryant Park, and um, you know, and then you decided that, well. Steve is gonna is a New York City guy. He's gonna build out his tech team there, but we're moving the rest of the company uh, pretty much to Syracuse. Talk to me about kind of what that decision making was like. Yeah, so I'd say again that that goes back to sort of the story of pivots and, and finding the the kind of market that's you're getting pulled into. And so when we were focused on this kind of you know retail fashion vertical and like sort of experimenting with this kind of digital publishing vertical, we thought, you know, this makes a lot of sense for us to be down in New York City. Um, as I mentioned, we sort of got pulled into the auto sector. Um, we actually hired our VP of BizDev, Steve Batten, who's here today. And um, remember, like it was yesterday, when he changed his LinkedIn profile, um, one of his dealers reached out to him and basically, you know, asked, I see what you guys are doing in retail. Is there an opportunity for you guys to try to do this in automotive? And that was uh, St. Patty's Day 2014. Remember, like it was yesterday. And we went out on a cold call and came back with the biggest contract in the company's history. It was a dealer group in northern New Jersey and kind of knew we were on to something, but decided to kind of straddle both industries for six months, right? I think, again, to Mike's point, people outside of the car business, it has, you know, can have a bit of a negative connotation, right? A fast-talking, plaid-suited salesman. 
So we sort of straddled both industries for six months, and in October uh, is when we decided to kind of focus purely on auto. That's when we rebranded the company, um, and we were trying to figure out what the more kind of repeatable, faster sales model was for the auto sector. And I never thought like candidly inside sales was would work. I figured you know dealers are more shake your in the hand, shake your hand, look you in the eye, slap you in the back kind of guys. But we decided to kind of run an experiment and. Um, you know, sort of wait out what 90 days to experiment this inside sales model would look like back in Syracuse, where we were originally from, versus down in New York. And we came to the Tech Garden was the first place, and they gave us, you know, a lease that included all the furniture we would need, included utilities, phones, everything. Um, and within like 30 days of make that decision to pilot that up here, it was outperforming our outside sales team. Mike and I ended up moving back up here and scaled up the team up here from there. Awesome, and. Um you know, the team is now how many people? Uh, yeah, north of 100 strong. Yeah, and, nice. and grown quickly each month still. Excellent. So, um, <clears throat> and what's sort of the split between New York City and up uh, here? So headquartered here in Syracuse have uh, 70 people in Syracuse, mm -hmm. 80 people in Syracuse. Uh, yeah, the balance in New York City. So very much a Syracuse-based company. Yeah, yeah. So, now we come to the news from last year. Feels like it's gone by in a blink, but um, Wavecrest comes in and and provides you with additional capital, create a uh, an exit for some investors, allows you to uh, you know. But you guys were already profitable uh, at that time, and and the capital and the and the input from Wavecrest. How talk to me about how that is helping you and and how that is changing the trajectory and the strategy uh, of the company from where you were before that um, <coughs> deal. Yeah, I mean, it's had an absolutely huge impact, right? So um, I would say first and foremost is, is from like a team composition standpoint, right? I mean, before it was kind of me, Mike, and Steve were kind of managing everything and, you know, all communication decisions kind of flowed through us. and. Um, you know, we've really been investing in building out a professional management team. You know, we've got folks that are flying in from, you know, Boston and Salt Lake City and New York City on a weekly basis so that we can bring in, you know, the real cream of the crop in terms of experienced sort of SaaS executives. Um, and so that was the first thing I would say. You know, secondly, um, we spent a lot of time on sort of the, the FP&A side of the business. And so understanding like, you know, kind of customer segmentation, um, you know, retention characteristics based on what types of products our customers buy, um, how can we pre-qualify customers better. Um, just like a single anecdote, right, as we ran sort of a quick little back-of-the-napkin pricing study and ended up being able to increase our pricing by 60% without impacting volume whatsoever. So new bookings basically went up like 50, 60%. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, beyond that, I mean, the Wavecrest team has been incredibly supportive. They've leaned way in. Um, I remember, you know, the biggest data point for me was, like pre-close before we had actually like signed the documents and closed funding, they probably spent like 80 hours on recruiting on trying to like help us find you know additional executive staff to help build the business. Um, so trajectories, yeah, been been phenomenal. I mean, now we're looking at things we never thought would be within our playbook, like mergers and acquisitions, or you know buying other companies to add to you know obviously our sales channel. Um, the one caveat I would have though is like when you think about like trajectory, right? It always makes me think. 
you hear as an entrepreneur that fundraising can be distracting, but you know, I thought, you know, we're immune to this. You know, we've got a good enough sales team. Like we're going to keep growing the business just like we were before. And now when you look back at our like revenue growth rate, it was growing. We went into like the fundraising diligence process. It's like grows, you know, at a very like menial rate. And then as soon as we came back out of it, we're growing hugely again. So I would just say, remember that, you know, it will be a distraction. Anytime you're raising money, try to get it done as quickly as possible um, and keep running the business because the biggest way to blow up a deal is to miss your numbers. Right. So um, in terms of the product offering, SpinCar is now about a lot more than spins, right? And you're, I assume when you're talking about M&A, you're talking about potentially other products that could be tucked in to provide a broader sense, uh, set of services to your existing customers and as well as continuing to grow the number of new customers. For, so, so can you talk a little bit about sort of what the key product lines are looking like for you right now? Sure. Yeah. Uh, sure. So, so yeah, I would say there's kind of like four main pillars to our business, right? And we think of our kind of product as a comprehensive merchandising solution, right? In our opinion, the auto industry is one of the last industries to undergo kind of full e-commerce evolution, like but for a few dealers in the country, one of whom's here today, you really can't buy a car online, right? You still have to go in and you actually have to like sign the paperwork, negotiate and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, what we've seen happen is recently there's been a lot of investment in kind of like, you know, top of the funnel marketing awareness sort of conquest campaigns. There's a lot of tools that have come out recently that focus on like driving more traffic to a dealer. So things like social, things like SEM, things like OEM programs. There's becoming a lot of focus on this thing called digital retailing, which basically empowers a dealer to be able to make a or consumer to make a transaction fully online. Where we feel like the big miss is is that nobody's really focusing on providing a more educational, transparent, interactive experience to make a consumer comfortable transacting, making a $30,000 decision without smelling, touching, driving the vehicle. And so that's really where all of our products are centered around is that kind of mid-funnel sort of merchandising consideration phase. Um, some of the main products that we've got, like a capture application that helps a dealer just get photos online quicker. It's kind of like a workflow tool. Um, helps ensure that the right photos are captured. I mean, photos are really critical. If you think about what creates that emotional connection when you're buying a product, you know, the vast majority of the time you spend, the last time you bought a backpack was probably interacting with the photos, right? Maybe you read a spec or two. So that's a critical kind of workflow tool that we offer. Um, we then have an entire sort of engagement platform that again, just provides kind of more information, more transparency. Um, another big problem in the space is vehicles are becoming increasingly complex and it's really hard for a consumer to understand What's the difference between this $30,000 three series and this $50,000 three series that have about the same number of miles and you know are the same model year? Uh, to me, it looks basically the same, right? And so what we've done is we built out a content library that helps educate consumers about what's the difference between BMW's collision avoidance system and Mercedes mitigation, you know, uh, or excuse me, uh, accident mitigation system, for example. And so what that does, that helps a dealer, again, educate that consumer about why that $50,000 vehicle would be more expensive. That entire engagement platform then outputs this really valuable sort of data exhaust, if you will, and this is really the kind of secret sauce to our business. Because we sort of control that engagement experience, it allows us to glean like really granular data about consumer behavior. So I can tell if Nasser's a performance buyer because you looked at a lot of performance features. Mike's a safety buyer. Sorry to make you a safety buyer, but <laughs> clicked on a lot of like safety features. 
Beckett's funneled into the sales department to have customized sales follow-up, so I can talk to Nasser about performance features, Mike about safety features, and then we use that for a whole lot of different marketing activations. So you can use that then in retargeting, you can use that then in social, um, you can use that then in how you think about digital retailing and what offers you make, what your calls to action are. Um, and then we also are starting to license that to some of our OEM partners so they can make decisions about like product planning, what should they consider making standard in the next year's three series, or what features should they market, you know, when they're advertising out to the, the public, for example. So, mm -hmm. Cool. Excellent. So, um, Mike, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how um, you're going overseas? Because I know we've had different approaches in the past, but how, how is the new, what's the new strategy for taking spin car um, yes, international. This is a really exciting milestone. Uh, so just this past month, we hired our first UK-based employee. Um, great referral from the Wavecrest team, actually. And um, yeah, I mean, in this day and age, in, in SaaS, I, I think historically the cons uh, conventional wisdom was that maybe twenty percent of your business would be um, international in, in Western Europe, uh, primarily. Uh, but really, in this day and age, if you want to be a market winner, um, we're seeing companies go international sooner than that. Um, we expect next year to see something like 10% of our revenue already at our stage uh, come internationally. And most of that's primarily uh, via reseller networks. Um, so partnering with local uh, companies that are in the automotive software sector, leveraging their existing sales forces um, from a compliance standpoint and so forth, obviously uh, much more capital efficient to, to take that uh, stance. But um, we view it as uh, a fabulous opportunity um, in some ways that the car buying experience is even more broken in, in Europe and we think uh, there's lots of room uh, for disruption there. Very cool. So before we open it up for questions, I have a, a last set of uh, uh, things that I'd love your perspective on. I mean, it, here we are, we're at the Tech Garden and you guys are three blocks away and if we go down the same Warren Street, you've got a company here, Density, that's raised you know uh, a fair amount of money um, we've got TCG player on the next block on the same block next door we have plows and moles we have spin car then we have sidearm sports I mean these are companies that are all up and coming right and none of them uh, existed 10 years ago um, or um, you know even when you guys were starting maybe TCG player was doing some comic book store websites or something, but it wasn't the the powerhouse e-commerce play that it is now. So what's your perspective on sort of how you're experiencing the evolution of the startup ecosystem and what do you guys think uh, is your role uh, and how is that going to change uh, in it? Yeah, I mean, I would say... Um I mean, it's really, really exciting. I mean, not to blow smoke, but Nasser, I mean, you've been talking about this in this community for 10 years, right? I mean, the, the rainforest effect or the snowball effect that can be sort of a tech ecosystem, right? If you look at like Boulder, Colorado and, and what's happened there, Nasser's been talking about that for 10 years and it feels like, you know, we're finally really getting material traction towards creating that here in upstate New York. A great example, again, is, you know, Steve Batten here was our, our VP of business development. Um, you know, he obviously helped us grow our business, participated in the liquidity that happened last year, and now has gone on to, to found his startup. And again, that's that kind of virtuous cycle, um, you know, snowball effect that is, you know, a tech ecosystem. So I'm just, yeah, really proud to be a part of it. Um, I think, you know, we all just got to continue to network, chip in, come to, come to events like this, help others out, offer support, you know, 
think the person at the, the last event that I saw, I mentioned like, you know, write the check to your friend type of thing, right? Take yeah. a, take a chance when things are early and, um, you know, one out of five or one out of 10 of those will pay off and, you know, hopefully it'll be sort of the next spin car. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've come a long ways, but have a, a lot further to go. And, um, as a community, I think, and really, I think the only thing preventing Syracuse from being, or other cities in upstate New York from being world-class technology centers is really capital access. I think it comes down to that. Um, and uh, I mean, we're obviously doing some angel investing locally. Um, I think the work that Starfast is doing with their accelerator is critical. Um, I'm really pleased to be involved in uh, Starfast Growth Fund, which is backing some of the other success stories that the accelerator program has kicked out in addition to other companies in the area. And um, I mean, if you look at the last generation of companies that sort of made upstate New York what it is today, the, the Carriers, the Kodaks, the Bausch and Lambs, the Welch Allens, um, I mean, there's clearly the talent pool to create these world-class companies. Um, but unfortunately, when you look at some of the world-class companies that have got split up over the last 10 years, the Netflixes, the Airbnbs, the NVIDIAs, Android, um, and these are all companies, believe it or not, that have either had a founder grow up in central New York within 60, 75 minutes of where we're sitting right here or be educated in this, in this region. Um, and I've, I've talked to many of them, and the reason they're not here building their companies uh, is because of reasons of capital access. In, in 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was impossible to raise capital um, in this part of the country, and we're seeing that change. And um, I'm excited to see it continue to change uh, further and, and faster in the years ahead. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing your, your story with us. And uh, uh, would you mind if we took some questions from the audience? Sure. All right, guys, far away. Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name's Floyd, and I'm just hearing about Spin Car for the first time. Uh, very exciting, so congratulations. It's really inspirational <coughs> um, and, and a really great story. So I'm curious, what role would you say intellectual property has played in the spin car evolution and, and starting up and even today and then maybe into the future. Yeah, um, so we do have a pretty good patent portfolio. Um, think IP is, um, in software, it's interesting. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not biotech, it's not medical devices. Um, so it's not the, the kind of thing that a lot of companies in, invest in. I mean, we've, uh, been lucky that we uh, have kind of had the, the foresight and, and the funds to, to do that uh, historically. But um, yeah, I mean, it is um, there. It is a, 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 a moat you have that you hope you don't have to use. We've been fortunate enough that we're the market leader category creator and are just sort of so far out ahead that we haven't had to worry about that. But, um, but yeah, I, it's an interesting question. If you might, I'll follow on. I mean, yeah, I would say while we've invested in IP, like we certainly have not prosecuted on it. I mean, I would say like what's allowed us to outcompete a lot of our competition is just like dogged execution and grit. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, we've got like, you know, strategic integrations secured, um, you know, things like that. But um, it's really just getting in the market, you know, cutting people off the knees, um, you know, doing what it takes to win every turn. Cutting people off the knees, that's a lacrosse term. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. Yeah, can we talk about hiring and specifically like hear about the first person you hired and you know, any sort of advice along the way of things you wish you'd done better or differently? Yeah, so for us it was a, it actually comes back to the Starfest story. It was actually a technical co-founder. Um, so it was just Mike and myself and we first started talking to these guys, I guess it was around 2012 and you know they, they said, you know, talk to us when you guys have somebody that's gonna be helping on the technical front, willing to 
to burn the midnight oil. Um, and, and we were fortunate to find an incredible chief technology officer, Steve Saporta. Um, honestly, we, we put an ad on AngelList and Mike and I were on our way down in New York for like some kind of sales meeting. And I got like a ping on my phone from the AngelList app and we ended up meeting him like 45 minutes later. And he's still with us to this day. He's done an incredible job building a team down there. As you can imagine, it's really hard to compete as a small scrappy company competing with you know Google and Facebook based in New York City. Um, but he's managed to do it. Um, so we were really, really fortunate in that arena. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, Mike. No. What's, what's it like hiring here in comparison? It's uh, I mean, I think it's, it's great. I mean, there's a local universities, wealth of talent to draw upon. I, th I think the one challenge which we've touched on is, mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the ecosystem is burgeoning. There are not many tech companies our, our stage or later that we can draw talent from for senior level right. hires. Um, hence, we've got a lot of them to recruit to the area or either commuting into the area um, from other metros that have more developed uh, technology ecosystems, but um, for entry level folks straight out of school, I mean, there's, I think, a few parts of the country that have more college students than we do right here. Yeah, I mean, cost of living, and then for us, I mean, we have a big inside sales and inside customer success, customer service team, and not having an accent has some value as well, or having minimal accent compared to other areas that are very low cost of living. I would say the other element that's a real competitive advantage for us is the culture that upstate New York has instilled in us. Like Mike just said, we hire a lot of people from outside the area. And, you know, I remember we hired our chief marketing officer from Boston, again, another Wavecrest referral. Um, and about like two weeks in, he came up and he's like, this is an incredible culture. He's like, like, you guys have something absolutely amazing here. And I got to talking to him like a week or two later, we had dinner. I'm like, you know, why do you think that is? And we finally started talking about it. And it's like, you know, I think it's it's the combination of like New York City, city that never sleeps, like work ethic combined with sort of like Midwestern, almost like familial values that's allowed us to build this like really supportive, really hardworking, really apolitical culture. And, you know, I think we have upstate New York to thank for that. And it, it really does wonders in recruiting as well. Great. Yes, ma'am. And I'm sure, Todd, you're too familiar with this too, right? I mean, it's a big problem in the industry. It's something like 80% of sales staff is men, right? So, I mean, that makes oh, yeah. the intimidation factor even worse. Um, honestly, it hasn't been like something we've sort of acutely focused on. I would say, you know, providing that sort of richer experience and more education online at least allows, I think, you know, consumers from their home to do more of the research before they have to enter that sort of face-to-face -face sales environment. Um, but, but, you know, we haven't kind of built out any tools specifically for that problem. I don't know, Mike, anything come to mind? Yeah, no, I, I think the whole transition that the in industry is undergoing now is, is beneficial to folks who don't feel comfortable in, in dealerships, I've given that they're able to do more of the research online, they're not as reliant upon a salesperson, um, and they kind of have the, the ammunition to, to go in and feel comfortable in the, in the dealership. Todd? Your, your product allows customers, whether they're men or women, right. to, to do that. Yeah, I can see that being huge. Their, yeah. their, their product allows you to have a level of transparency. Right. No matter how old you are, no matter if you're male or female, whether you know anything about cars or don't know about cars, have a level of transparency with the information that they provide, not just with the 365, but the features and the options that the car has. Right. And allow that to happen. I, mean, I can definitely see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you were talking, I was like, 
can't imagine buying a car online, but then I was like, hey, wait a minute, I can imagine buying a car online because it would take a lot of the stress out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big reason I think that whole category of like digital retailing has come about is because you know people sometimes are intimidated with that face-to-face -face interaction, and um, there's a big movement towards basically one price, no haggle pricing, because yeah, negotiating can be stressful. So, great. Well, yes, go ahead, Lynn. Um, I talked to Mike a little bit before about this. What what thought process did you go through in regard to evaluating? When you got your A rounds from Waycrest, the other people you picked them or didn't pick them, what was important to you besides the money that, that, was, that made your decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in central New York, it's hard to realize this, or people sometimes forget it, just given capital access isn't great here, but it, capital is kind of a commodity. And um, what you get from your investor, I mean, the capital is, is fabulous, but I'd encourage any entrepreneur to really talk with a potential investor about their domain expertise. I think the primary value add Wavegrass has brought us is um, wealth of domain expertise, automotive software expertise, uh, SMB expertise, um, that um, is just obviously highly relevant to what we're doing day in, day out. Um, they uh, have seen folks go through the, the same trenches we're going through right now. They, they know um, what to, to, to tell us, what, how to guide us, um, the sorts of KPIs we should be hitting. and. Um, I think finding uh, that relevancy in, in domain expertise is, is something I'd encourage anyone who's trying to, to raise venture capital to, to press potential investors on. Thank you. Yeah, just word that the entrepreneurs in the room is like, you know, it, it, you've probably heard this before, raising money is like getting married. I mean, it really like is. I mean, you really also need to, in addition to kind of what their, you know, background and work experience is, you need to make sure you have an interpersonal connection too. I mean, I talk to Deepak like, you know, three times a week probably, and that's important, you know, you're, you're going to be working with these people for five to seven years in a very close capacity. So that drew us to them as well. Great. Okay, one last question. <laughs> what was uh, your backgrounds regarding the uh, coding or app development personally? Zip. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they need to find the CTO. <laughs> you, you had that one. No. No. Yeah, no, none. No. You played video games. But I, I agree with yeah. Nasser's assessment, right? That you need, like, a, once we had a technical co founder, Pace started picking up massively because there was somebody that could help us kick, hit customer deadlines, customer deliveries. Things just got done faster. There wasn't the agency issue of, like, them overbilling us for hours. So I do think that's critical, but no, so, neither might yeah, nor I have it. Help, very helpful, but I would say not necessary. necessary. That's yeah. Thank you. Can I draw you for one? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Going back for when you guys first started, this ecosystem was not as mature as it, as it is now. Uh, it's still developing, but how did you make those initial connections with investors? If I could just give one just on the tech art. I mean, that was one of the beauties of being here is like, one of the learnings I had was like, and I haven't had to do it in a long time since being in this like really scrappy stage. I mean, a lot of times for things to work out, for you to get your first sale, meet your first investor, I mean, it's like a third or fourth degree connection. The nice thing about being in the tech garden, there's always events like this happening. So there's always people you can meet. And honestly, it's just like sales, in my opinion. Activity breeds activity. Success begets success. And just having that activity around you, having people that can connect you to others, um, that really helped being right here. Um, and I would say otherwise, I mean, otherwise it was just like cold LinkedIn, cold connections from where we went to college, things like that. 
Also start fast. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Also start fast. <laughs> I thought we were talking three star fast. So, yeah, right. they, they have a network. Liver right here. <laughs> they have a network of like 300 mentors that are mostly yes. like that John Miller caliber. So, serial entrepreneur, domain expertise. So, thank you. I'd like to recognize my start fast partners, Chuck Storman and. and James Shomar, who's hidden by Lynn Smith, who was um, so 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 Lynn has been doing deals in Syracuse forever, and I remember um, he was the guy who got the city to give the building for like a dollar a year long term lease, and then you know so it was sort of uh, to me he's the guy who kind of made this place happen, yep. and and then led the way with the seed capital fund, and that's how we met Chuck, and then Startfast came along. Uh, a few years later, so so there's a lot of history, but that but it's really one of a growing community, and I think the opportunities today are far greater. So thank you all for coming, and please join me in giving a warm hand for our guests. Thanks again for listening to the first episode of the Tech Garden Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with another interview with a different Tech Garden startup company. You can find us on most podcast platforms, so please subscribe to keep in the loop.